Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. If you have a Bible, please open with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 19. So it is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and there's a long and storied history to Thanksgiving. It is a uniquely Christian holiday, and I've, for five, five years, yeah, five years now, been doing a, essentially a sermon series where once, once a year, on, when we're getting ready for Thanksgiving, I talk about Thanksgiving. So if you're interested in the historical history of it, why, of all things, did the pilgrims, when they come here, decide to celebrate with a Thanksgiving meal? And the history of that actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, the Eucharist is what the Lord's Supper, the communion, has been called in the liturgy for a long time, and that comes from the Greek word for Thanksgiving. So the Thanksgiving meal is something that Christians have been celebrating since the Lord was with us, and so when something good happens, that's what we tend to do. So the other thing that I've been doing, apart from dealing with the historical and distinctly Christian aspects of Thanksgiving, is to talk about how Thanksgiving is actually a culture of the church. The church ought to have a culture of giving thanks. Gratitude is key. Paul said uh, to First Timothy, I think it was in First Timothy, that we sanctify things by giving thanks as the priesthood of all believers. Our responsibility as priests in this world is to sanctify and set apart things by the giving of thanks. And today what I want to talk about is how giving thanks gives us peace. Giving the Lord thanks is a way of attaining peace in this world. And so before we begin, let us pray. Lord, we've entered your presence to hear you speak from heaven to us, we, to receive your reign and spiritual dew, which never return in vain, but ripen a harvest either of wheat or weeds, of grace or judgment. Our hearts are now prepared, O Lord, our hearts are prepared to learn and to love your words. Your law is our counselor. We will be ruled by it. It is our physician. We will be patient under it. It is our schoolmaster, and we will be obedient to it. But who are we that we should offer such a service to you? And who is our minister that he should do any good on your behalf or to us without your grace and your heavenly call? Be therefore pleased to reveal your, your own spirit to us and to work in us that which you require. For this reason, we bow our heads before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And according to the riches of your glory, we pray, Lord, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit and our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and amen. Now, I'm going to just suddenly now jump into Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, and that is always a dangerous task. I do not like it when you just go into a book like this and pick a verse and just start talking about it without giving some context. I think sub, you know, context, subtext, all the things that are going on for Paul at the time of the writing, the things that are going on in, in Thessalonia are important to us to understand the words in chapter 5. So Paul wrote this, his first epistle to the church in Thessalonica, while staying for 18 months in Corinth. This uh, his second missionary journey, recorded in Acts 18, comes after his long visit in Thessalonica. Now, he was there in Acts 17. He visited it. 
He loved the saints there. They loved him. He had a great relationship with him. And in the next chapter of Acts, it seems like it just goes very quickly, but it's actually a considerable amount of time has passed. And he's in Corinth, and he, he gets a report from Titus about how they're doing, which is a positive report. And so he sits down to write them a letter. Now, this actually is very interesting because he tells them that Titus gave him a good report. So why, if they get a good report, would he write them a letter having any kind of corrective thing to say to them? I, I think it's important for us to understand this. This is how the apostles work. He, he hears that they're doing well, and so he writes them a letter to tell them that they're doing well, but also he's concerned for them. Everything that he has to instruct them in their doctrine and in the, in the day of the Lord and the second coming of Christ and, and telling them to, um, as we're going to see, rejoice and pray, all his instruction comes out of his concern and love for them. And, and because they are doing well, he wants them to do better. It's, it's not at all like a letter, the letters he wrote to Corinth. Corinth had all kinds of problems. And he loved them, and he had to admonish them. And he was doing it in writing so that when he came to them in person, it was nothing but love and fellowship and kindness. Here, he's very concerned about them. And, and they are going to the, getting to the point where they're not obeying their own ministers because, they, because they're not Paul. <laughs> this is part of one of their problems. They, they want Paul back. Why are you sending us proxies? Why did Titus come and visit us? Why did you leave us with these elders who are not you? We want you. And that's, that yearning for him and his yearning for them is actually one of the things going on in this letter. The other thing is he mentions the second coming of Christ six times. In every single chapter, he talks about the second advent of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't really actually explain it. Um, verses in this, in this book are taken out of context all the time to justify all kinds of eschatological nonsense. Uh, he doesn't really say very much about it. What he reminds them of is, is to stop focusing so much on it because they're so focused on when Jesus is going to come back that one of their problems literally is that some of their very beloved saints, some of the saints that were like the most loving and cared for in their community died, and they actually are afraid that they're not going to see Jesus because they died before the second coming. And this is one of the things he's dealing with because they're like, well, they're dead now, right? They're dead now, they're gone, and Jesus is coming back any minute, <laughs> and they're not going to be here with us to enjoy it. And he's like, no, 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 this is, this is not how it works, right? And so he, when he goes on to explain those aspects of the letter, that's what he's talking about. Now, the other, and I think very humorous part, is that there are a lot of people who are confused about Jesus coming back very quickly, and so they're not working. So he's admonishing the idle amongst them because some of them think Jesus is coming back any minute, and so I don't have to have a job. And, and, and some people are living off of the wealthier members. <laughs> They're like, why do any of us ever have to work again? Jesus is coming back any day. And so one of the contexts, again, in this letter is that people are, are, are fixated on when Jesus is coming back, and what it's causing them to do is to lose their peace, to lose their... their um, their joy in the Lord, the joy of their salvation, it's also causing them to be lazy, right? And, and tell me that that isn't a problem that we have in the modern day. This is, people are so distracted by when Jesus is or isn't coming back. Uh, I've been asked, why am I having so many kids and, and going through all that work and expense when Jesus is coming back any day? And, and I just think, read 1 Thessalonians, okay? Read 1 Thessalonians. Just because Jesus might be coming back at any moment like a thief in the night doesn't mean that we stop working, okay? So th this is all what's going on here. They want him, not their ministers. They don't want to work. They want to just live off the rich people. And they're, and, they're, and they're very sad because some beloved saints have died, 
and they don't think they're going to participate in the resurrection. Now, I always find these things just interesting. Thessalonica, it's really weird when you go from saying the letter to then the name of the city. Thessalonica uh, had about 100,000 people. It was the capital of Macedonia. Uh, they had their own government. They, they were extremely powerful. They were on the trade routes. They had a natural harbor. It, it's a very wealthy, affluent city. Uh, the people there were into the imperial cult. They worshipped the emperor. They also had Egyptian cults. There was also a huge um, population of Jews, which in Acts 17, that all of that is, is, is why there's so much trouble when Paul goes there, because there, there's a, a healthy trade of idol worship that he attacks. Now, the hopeless grieving that they are experiencing, that, that's one of the things that Titus told them about, right? They're in the city where there's all kinds of pagan worship. They're in the city where there's all kinds of affluence. And all of these people want to do is get out of there and, and, and have Jesus come back and take them out of this nonsense. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone? When I was reading this, I was in there in the office, and I laughed out loud, and I was like, that sounds like Seattle. Like a port city, all kinds of pagans, very affluent, and lots of people distracted from the real work of the kingdom because we just want Jesus to come back and get us out of here. I was like, well, this is perfect. Now, Paul is filled with joy when he hears of Timothy's positive report, and, and his letter is just brimming over with all kinds of praise and thanksgiving and encouragement and kindness. He's very encouraged to hear, and, and all of his admonishment, is, is, it's, it's almost hard to find it because it's mixed in with so much positive statements. He's just very gushy when, when he writes this letter. Um, First Thessalonians is an informal epistle. It contains all the common ingredients of a normal epistle. Uh, but we, we find in chapter 5, verse 27, this specific command, which we assumed when we were re, uh, studying Titus, but here he says it. He says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle is to be read to all the holy brethren. Now, that's very crucial when it comes to the verses we're going to talk about. This, he's not talking about personal piety. Right? Titus was talking about personal piety. He was talking about church structure. He's talking about if your wife, do X. If you're an old man, do X. This is a letter he wants read out to everyone because what he's talking about is the culture of the whole church. He wants everyone to be on the same page. When you come together, this is what I want you to do. Now, should you also do in private what you do as a group? Yes, right? Hopefully, here is not the only place you sing and pray and read the word of God. But when we're together, there's a certain way that we're to be together. There's a certain culture that we ought to have. There's a certain... um, rejoicing and prayer and thanksgiving that we ought to have when we come together, and, and it's, it should be a delight to come together and to do these things. So that's, that's all the background that I'm going to give you. You're welcome. Now what I'm going to do is read First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 19, where Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Now, there's just a couple of things that I want to point out. Right out of the gate, this sounds like a yoke I don't even want to attempt to carry, right? Right out of the gate. When you isolate these verses, and I don't know how many times I've been warned in books on counseling to not simply go to a sad person, open up 1 Thessalonians to chapter 5, and tell them to, hey, come on, man, rejoice always. Right? Imagine if you're in, in, on the freeway and you rear-end another car and there you are with the airbag and your broken nose and, and, I, and I see you're crying and I come running up and I say, hey, you're not rejoicing. Rejoice always. Right? How helpful would that be? Okay. So it's important for us to understand 
I, I remember a few years ago, quite a few years ago, we went to a men's retreat and, and Dean was teaching through this concept of, of, of constantly being in a state of prayer. And we were all, it, like the further he taught on it, the more confused we all were. It was a delight. Because we're like, well, what does this actually mean? Like if I just did nothing but pray all the time, how would I get anything else done? Okay, so he's not obviously talking about sitting on my, you know, getting on my knees and staying in a state of prayer forever. Because how would you, so he's clearly talking about a way of life, not so much about an actual action that you do. Okay, so we're going to deal with all of those things because it sounds like a heavy burden, but it's not nearly as, as heavy, and, and it's a bit of a trick of the ear when you think of it that way. Okay, I, I'm not telling you to go home now and be like, okay, everyone forsake your marriages, forget, for, forsake your jobs, we're all going to go live in eastern Washington in the desert, like, like the desert fathers in Egypt, and we're just going to live this life where all we do is pray. Right? You can see why monks and the various, right, those houses of, of monasteries and abbeys, and everything, you can see why they would get into that. If you, you can misapply this very easily. The last kind of puzzle is that in, in the context of saying this, he actually adds, do not quench the spirit. Well, what in the world? I, I find that so confusing. It's very confusing. You're telling me to do all these things. I have to do these things, and then you're telling me not to quench the spirit. What does the spirit have to do with any of this? How does, he, how does he work into this? When did you bring him into the conversation? And what do you mean by quench him? Like a fire extinguisher? Like you don't want me to be a wet blanket? Like I, I don't really understand what he means. So let's begin to understand what he's talking about here. Paul is addressing the culture of the whole church as a community, not merely personal piety. He, what he's describing here, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks, these are commands. Okay? He's not asking them. He's not suggesting them. He, he's, he's not um, describing a culture that he found there. It's not descriptive what he's saying. It's prescriptive. He's commanding them to do this. Now, <laughs> man, here, here's a little, right? When, you're, when you and your wife are arguing, how well does it go when you tell her to calm down, Right? How well does that go? You're like, woman, calm down. What are you doing? That never works. And, and I don't know how many times I, I've been in a situation where people, it, it, things are not going well, and people are like, well, just give thanks. And you know the last thing I want to do? Give thanks. The, one, the thing I do want to do is punch them in the face. Because I'm like, get out of my face with that. And we become Job's counselors very quickly. And, and I think these verses can be very easily misapplied. What he's doing is he's commanding us to do something, and there must be more to it. He must have something else. There's something else going on in this letter because if he knows that they're sad, he knows that they're grieving, right? He must have given them some other clue as to how this all works because nothing makes a sad person sadder than just telling them to be happy, right? <laughs> when your kids are crying, you know, the, the eyes are welling, and you're like, <laughs> Peter, my little Peter does this better than anyone. And, and like the tears are just there, and you and you're like smile, right? I order you to smile. And he does the smile with the tears. It's it's adorable. And <laughs> this is, this is, it's foolishness. It's foolishness, right? That kid doesn't want to smile, and it, and it looks it's totally gross when he does it because it's so out of character. If you're gonna cry, just cry. Okay. When you're done, then we'll smile. So I, I don't want you guys to take these verses and go away from here and be Job's counselors. Okay. This is what I want to say. He, he says to rejoice, okay? Now, rejoice is a verb. Now, back in chapter 1, if you turn with me to chapter 1, verse 6, 
He says something else about joy there. He says this in, in chapter six, at, or I'm sorry, chapter one, verse six, at the end of the verse. He says, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You received the word with much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. He, he's told them already, what you have received is joy of the Holy Spirit. You've been given joy. Now, later, at the end of the letter, he's saying, therefore, rejoice. What he's not saying is, gen up some joy. And I think right there, that's where I think people get misled very quickly here. He's not telling them to make themselves joyful. He's already told them that you've been given from heaven joy. The Holy Spirit, and the, through the word of God, these things have descended upon you from heaven, and, and the fruit of that descent, the fruit of that existence, the fruit of that fellowship with you, the Word, and the Holy Spirit is joy. Therefore, rejoice. So, what I, so <laughs> this then is the path we have to understand. Where does the joy come from? The joy doesn't come from within them. The joy comes from without. The joy comes from somewhere else. Their responsibility isn't to gen up the joy. Their responsibility is to exercise the thing that they've already been given. And this is what Paul is always talking about, work out what's been worked in, right? If, he, if the fruit of the Spirit is patience, right, you, you receive patience, then what you have to do is be a patient person, right? If you receive joy, then you ought to be a person who, who rejoices, right? One is a noun, one is a thing that is given, the other is a verb, the other is an action. You've been given joy, that's the fact, now your response is rejoice. And you can see how this is so consistently how Paul talks. He tells you what God has done from heaven, and then he tells you what you ought to do in response to what God has done from heaven. God has given you joy, so rejoice. Joy is a gift. It's not something that we can produce ourselves. Therefore, he says, do not resist the Holy Spirit. This is why he's saying don't resist the Holy Spirit. Because here these saints are, and, and they've, heard the, right, they've heard the gospel, but their best, best friends have died, and they're very sorrowful. And, and, the, and the spirit and the word have come to them and giving them joy. But what they want to do is continue in a state of grief. And that's what he means by quenching the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is oh, listen, is there hope for those who have died? Yes, you, you turn to the word of God, and by the Holy Spirit, you understand what is said here. This gives us joy, and so that we can go on rejoicing. And what we do by resisting the Holy Spirit is closing this and saying, no, thank you. I'm going to wallow in my sadness. I'm going to wallow in my depression. I'm going to wallow in what I think is wrong. And, and I'm, not, I'm going to resist the Spirit. And what I find really terrifying about this is that we do it without even understanding that we're doing it. Right? This, I want you guys to go away from here and learn this. You can resist the Holy Spirit and not even know you're doing it. I do not think that you God-fearing people go home and think, you know what I'm going to do today is resist the Spirit. He's an awful, he's really strong-arming me lately, and I am tired of it. No, we, we do it in, in this kind of carelessness where we don't understand the connection between these things. Right? The fir- right? You, start, you don't read the Word of God regularly. Things happen to us, and, we're not, and, and, and we do get sad. Circumstances are difficult, and we, we go into, if you're, if you're a man especially, you get into, well, we're going to fix this mode. You don't sit down and say, you know what? These circumstances require me to, be, to, to, give, to, to rejoice. 
And so I'm going to go back to the source of joy and make sure that I'm filled with the joy necessary to rejoice in the middle of these circumstances. I'm going to sit down and remind myself of the gospel. I'm going to remind myself who God is. I'm going to remind myself what he's done for me. I'm going to remind myself of the hope that lies ahead of me. And now what I'm going to do is go to work. And, and we don't do that, do we? I don't know how, right? how many times do we, do, do we try everything that we can possibly try and then say, okay, well, maybe what we, well, everything else is not working. Let's pray. Has that ever happened to you? Right? We go down the list. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, fix it. Let's try to fix it. Let's try to spend some money, right? Because we're modern Americans and money fixes everything. Uh, let's try to ignore it. Uh, let's just have another drink. You, we go down this long list of ways of dealing with problems, and then oftentimes we're like, you know what we should do is pray about it. What, what, what he's describing here is something very different. The word of God has revealed to us the gospel. It's descended. It's been revealed. It's been given to us. And, 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 we, and in that gospel, we're told, if we believe in the Lord Jesus and are united to him, we receive his spirit. And when we receive his spirit, there's a number of other things we receive. And, and, and so don't quench the Holy Spirit. Stay engaged with the actual process the Lord has prescribed for us. What we do because because we're afraid, what we do because we're tired, what, we're, what, we're, what we do because we think we're living in our own strength. We do all these things where we end up quenching the spirit and we don't even know what we're doing. And so this is why disciplines and habits help us stay close to God and stay, close, uh, stay um, engaged in the process that God has prescribed for us. Now, if you, if you look back in chapter 1, okay, I was reading the second half of verse 6. It says, for you received the word. He's stating a fact. You received the word with affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, you go back to verse 5, and at the very beginning of verse 5, this is what he says. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So you can see the joy is a result of what? The revelation of heaven of the gospel the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which, which gave us what? Conviction, full conviction, and power. Okay, so if that's how we got the joy and we're told to rejoice, right, when we come into difficult circumstances, just telling one another to rejoice in the thing that's happening isn't going to work. You've always got to point people back to the source of the joy if you're going to tell them to rejoice. So Psalm 126, verse 1 through 3 um, I think, illustrates this very well. Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3. He says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now you see the process. God restores the fortunes of Zion. They are like those who dream. Now, that's an interesting phrase there because what it means is they, can, they, they, they disbelieve because it's so outrageous. And this terminology was used when Jacob found out that his son Joseph was still alive. He, he, was, he, he, was, he stood there. He was staggered in unbelief for a moment. He didn't even believe what they were telling him. He didn't, he's, you know, pinch me. Is this a dream? Is this the matrix? What is going on? The same terminology is used of the apostles uh, or Paul, essentially, when he's saved uh, from the jail by the angel. 
he, he actually disbelieves what's happening to him. He's literally living it out and doesn't believe it's happening. He thinks he's dreaming. The angel's leading him out of the jail, and it's so miraculous and unbelievable what's happening to him that he's literally like, well, I must be dreaming. And then he's following him out, and he goes outside, and then the cold air is on him in the night, and he's like, wow, that wasn't a dream. This is real. Now, when God restores the fortunes of Zion, isn't, isn't it sometimes staggering? Sometimes isn't our disbelief, not because we're not told the truth, but because we are? Sometimes we're told the truth, and the truth is so outrageous, the grace is so unbelievable, that we don't believe it. We stagger as those who dream. Right? There's no way that God forgave that. I must be dreaming. There's no way that this relationship has been reconciled. I can't even believe it. Now, the result of that, that action from heaven that staggers us, is, a, right? what does he say? Shouts of joy, filled with laughter. We are glad. So what Paul is not saying to people who are suffering is, hey, buddy, rejoice. Don't just rejoice. Rejoice always. What's wrong with you? No, in the very beginning, like a tender father, he says, listen, he's assuming things about the listeners. He doesn't assume that their despair, he doesn't assume that their sadness comes from unbelief as if they don't know Jesus. He's saying, listen, the gospel came to you. I know it came to you. I know that you received it. I know that you received the Holy Spirit. I know that because the Holy Spirit is with you, you received joy. So rejoice, he says. The cure for what ails them is is rejoicing because the joy has been given to them. he's, He's filling in the holes. He's connecting the dots. He wants to restore to them, as David said in in Psalm 51, the joy of their salvation. And the joy of their salvation is going back to the basics and looking what has been revealed from heaven, how our fortunes have been restored, and how staggering that grace is. The joy that is given to us is meant to be expressed. It's meant to be spent and spent lavishly. Rejoice always, Paul says. He doesn't say do a little bit. He doesn't say, and, and, and imagine if you have a kid and, they're, and you're at the fair or you're at the grocery store and you're like, you know what, here's a $50 bill. I'm giving you this $50 bill. Go and buy your brothers and sisters some candy. Right? Now, what would you think if, he, if the kid goes over there and buys everybody a 25-cent lollipop? Like, well, you clearly do not understand the point of the $50 bill, right? I mean, your, your imagination is too small. <laughs> and, and we are like that. God gives us $100 million, and we go out and we spend 20 bucks, right? That, right? What Paul is saying is, listen, you have been given an endless amount of joy. There is no, there, you want to know the source of this joy does not end. It's a fountain that keeps flowing, and it will go on flowing for eternity, and so you know, you know what you can do is rejoice always because the source of the joy never runs out. It never runs out. That's why he says always. Right? You can always do it. There's no, when you're, you're given $100 million, good luck trying to spend $100 million. Right? You get 10 minutes. Go. <laughs> the joy is unceasing. Psalm 20, verse 5 says, may we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. And may that is the culture that Paul wants to see in the church that he's writing to. He wants them to know the gospel. He wants them to know that they've received it, to have certainty about that, and because of that, be filled with joy and be able to rejoice always. Now turn with me to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. 
Psalm 16. And I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. And, and, and this helps us understand what Paul is saying. This is, I think, what he has in mind when he's instructing them about the gospel they've received and the joy and the rejoicing. Psalm 16, verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Remember, it was read for us earlier. He was mentioning that, that those who live in night and those who live in the day. Okay. In the night I also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, what is the confidence that David is talking about here? It's the fact that he is with the... He's, he says, he is at my right hand. I am at his right hand. He says both. In verse 8, he says, he's at my right hand. At the, at the last verse, he says, I'm at his right hand. Okay? He says, his holy one will not see corruption. Now, in, in Acts chapter 13, that is applied directly to Jesus. So Jesus died, right? He was killed. His body was dead. But that's not the only thing. He was resurrected. And not only that, he ascended. The Lord Jesus, the anointed of the Lord, will never see corruption. He will never know corruption. His body did not decay. He still has it. It's doing just fine. Okay? That is the confidence by which we know that this fountain of joy will never cease. When you believed in the gospel, when the gospel came to you and you received it, you didn't just receive it, you received the Holy Spirit, and what he did was he put you at God's right hand and God at your right hand. Later in Philippians, that's what he says, God is at hand. This is, he wants them to understand. He's not just telling them, like, listen, life is terrible. Life is full of pain. Life is full of suffering. Go out there, and the best you can, demonstrate some joy. No, he said, no, what has been revealed to you from heaven is that the Lord our God descended, the Lord our God lived, the Lord our God died, the Lord our God rose, the Lord our God ascended, and you are with him and he is with you because of the Holy Spirit. Rejoice. Now, you tell me when you can't access that thread. You tell me what circumstance that you're enduring, however hard it might be, where you, are di- you, you, you can't access that system. Right? where you can't access that relationship. You can't access that process. Because no matter what we're doing, we can go back to the gospel and be reminded of everything that I just said. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. With him there is joy. And so if you need, right? it's not even if you need. You do need it, and heaven has given it to you. There's no end to the joy that you have received. It's not an emotional high. It's not a feeling. The focus here is on an inner abiding attitude of pleasure, recognizing that whatever one encounters, even in trials, it is God's will. That's why it's God's will for you, he says in verse 18. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Whatever you are going through, 
You are not bereft of this relationship. You are not bereft of this revelation, this Holy Spirit, this unity, this joy. C.S. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven, and this is what he's talking about. Because it is hard to keep going with it, isn't it? Right now, on Christmas morning, little children, I'm sure that you can imagine more joy than you can possibly express to me. I'm sure on your birthday when you're sitting there and there's a cake and there's a pile of presents next to it, joy is easy. Right? Payday, or direct deposit day, as we're now calling it, is always a day where you're like, ah, yeah, let's go to the store and buy something a little nicer, a little extra. It's payday. Let's do this. There's lots of times where it's easy for us, we think, to express joy. But I would like to argue that that's not even actually expressing joy. What he's talking about here is realizing who you are to Christ and who Christ is to you and where he is right now, which is at your right hand. Where are you right now? You're at his right hand. And in the good times and the bad times, that's what he wants us to understand. That's why it's the serious business of heaven. Now, rejoicing is not the only activity that is to be conducted always. Paul also commands the Thessalonians to pray continually, literally unceasingly is what the Greek word means. Paul encouraged his churches to make prayer a part of their personal Spiritual discipline, it's true. Romans 12, 12, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Philippians 4, 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul and his co-workers pray together regularly, as he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. He says there, we give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So look, he's doing something at the very beginning of this letter. He's telling them to do the thing, or he's telling them he does the thing that he's going to instruct them to do themselves. And Paul always does this. Right now, you love this man. You want this man. You want this man to come and visit you so bad that, you, that you're, you're having a hard time even obeying your local minister because you want Paul to come so badly. And he starts this letter with, I give thanks for you in all my prayers, which I am constantly doing. And then later, when he says pray constantly, pray unceasingly, you think, I want to be just like Paul. I want to be just like Paul. He's demonstrating, gentlemen, he's demonstrating the behavior he wants to see in the people who are following him, the people he's instructing. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, if you're educating your children or you educate other people's children, he's demonstrating the behavior that he wants to see in the people he's writing to. He valued the prayers of the church. 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Paul says, brothers, Pray for us. Brothers, pray for us. It's not only that he, con- he was in constant prayer for all the people that he was teaching and instructing and who were following him, but he wants them to pray for him. Prayer is huge for Paul. Now, why? Right? If we know what God has done from heaven, if we know what he's done, and, and we know that he knows what we're going through, isn't it weird that he wants us to spend so much time in prayer? Doesn't it seem, right, as kingdom people, we're taking dominion, Right? This is what happens to us. We don't really think we need to pray like we ought to. Because God knows. Why do I gonna t- right? What am I going to tell him anything he doesn't already know? Why does he care what I have to say about this subject? He's God and he's going to do whatever he wants. We typically go to actions, right? We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to write this. We're going to write that. We're going to build this. We're going to build that. We're going to do this program. We're going to do that program. Our whole life is about work. 
especially modern Americans, right? It's work, 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 leisure, 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 leisure. Paul has this way of understanding. He, he addresses them. The first words out of his mouth are, I have been praying for you unceasingly. Hey, rejoice always. Pray unceasingly. Pray for us. He wants prayer to be central in the ministry of this church because it's central to his ministry. Now, three aspects of prayer that, I mean, we could, there's an endless amount of information we can say about prayer, but let me just do three quick hits for you. Okay, what, why? Why does he want them constantly to be in prayer? Well, let, let's think about this, this relationship that he's already described. One of the things that you can do if you're constantly in prayer is confess your sins. And I'm sure that if, if you went with prayer solely based on sin, bam, there you go, pray unceasingly. <laughs> right? There's an easy way to get to praying unceasingly if you consider just simply praying about your sins. We remind ourselves, though, when we are confessing our sins, that Jesus has suffered for us, that he has overcame death, that he, have, he has cleansed us, that he has restored us, that he has forgiven us. And there you see automatically how you're engaging in this relationship loop that I was talking about before that accesses all of that joy. If you're talking to him about what he's done for you, you're remembering the gospel and, and you're praying in the Holy Spirit, which is drawing you near to him, and that's how you get more of this joy. You see how these things work together. Second, we are filled with thanks when we recognize how God has answered previous prayers. When we go to God, we say, listen, here's the, here are the sins I've committed. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for having fulfilled the prayer that I already prayed. And this is a loop that most of us don't close, right? Some of us keep journals. Some of us know exactly what we prayed for. I, I know a guy who has a book. He actually writes down the date and time that the prayer he was praying was answered. And I, I was like, well, that's hardcore. But then, you know, how often I go back and think, you know, God, thank you for answering. I don't remember what I prayed for. I don't remember if he fulfilled it. And so, right, so the, the connection there, is he with me? Is he hearing me? Is he responding to me? Is he guiding me? Is he doing the things that I'm at? Like, I'm going to him with my cares and concerns. Is he engaging in them? And if you're actually remembering what he's done, you're automatically giving him thanks. Thank you, God, for doing X. Thank you, God, for showing me that that prayer unanswered was actually better than I realized. Now, the third thing prayer does is it allows us to contemplate God himself. We contemplate that word that we have received from on high. We contemplate the gospel. In our prayer, we, think, we say, listen, you are the God of, and then you start describing him. You start telling him about himself. And I'm telling you, he doesn't get tired of hearing that. Right? Because uh, if you're a parent, when is, right, have you ever had your son or daughter standing there praising you? Praising you for the dinner that you cooked? And you're like, okay, 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 okay. That's about enough. That's about enough of that. I've had enough of that nonsense. No, right? How, how delightful is it when the kids who are sitting down consuming all of your labor are just like ever vesting about it? I love it. I'm like, yeah, kid, do it. Yeah, you're right. Woo. God is like, he's a loving father who, who loves to be adored by his children. That's, that's what all of this is about. That's why he has a weekly worship service. If he didn't want our adoration, he'd be like, eh, once a year is good. Eh, I'll see you at Christmas. Now, to give thanks is what Paul said of his own actions on behalf of the Thessalonians I've already mentioned in chapter 1, verse 2. He says that not only does he pray for them, he gives thanks for them. But in chapter 3, verse 9, he also says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Now, right there, he's connecting 
these ideas together. He's saying, what possible thanksgiving could we return to God for you? What you are to me, what you are to us, what your faith is to us, what you've accomplished is so great, there's no thanksgiving that we can return to God for it. And then he goes on, right? I mean, this is Paul that we're talking about. Do you know how many people he's responsible for? Do you know how many churches are in his network? Do you know how many ministers he's keeping track of? And he's saying that when he thinks of them specifically, he says, all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. When he's before God in prayer, he feels all this joy. Now, when is the last time Right? That we prayed for about our coworkers in this way. That we prayed about our extended family in this way. That we prayed about our own family in our own house this way. You ought to see that not only have you received the gospel from heaven, you've received a spouse, you've received a home, you've received everything. You've received a job, you've received coworkers, you've received neighbors, you've received the people at your school, the people at your co-op, the people at your CC group, the people in your sports team, the coaches. You've received all of that. And all of that ought to fill you with joy because it shows God's grace towards you, and that ought to fill you with gratitude for them and joy. Paul, again, just to mentioned one more time, is again modeling the behavior he wants to see. This is always, you can't tell people to do things you're not willing to do yourself. You're not going to tell people to obey things and to accomplish things that you yourself think are too hard to do and are unwilling to do yourself. He delights in these things, and he delights because he delights in the Lord, and he wants them to share in that delight. Now, last but not least, Paul concludes his letter With a blessing. He says in chapter 5, verse 23, he says, Now, 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 may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Well, what is that? Why does he say now? It seems like that, that's like a conclusion to something, doesn't it? Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Now that you are rejoicing. Now that you are praying. Now that you are giving thanks, Paul says, now may the God of peace sanctify you. Because if you're not giving thanks, if you're not going to him, if you're not thinking of him, you're not praying to him, you're not, you're not ex- rejoicing in him, right? You're ignoring him, and you're going unsanctified. But as soon as you get on your knees and you start talking to him, and you say, you know what, you have done greater things than I could possibly have imagined. You filled my life with things like so much grace. Uh, you, these are my sins. Please forgive me. When you're doing all of these things, that's when the God of peace sanctifies you. And he's standing there just, right? He's at your right hand. He's, ne- he's never been away from you. He's there with you. And he's, he's waiting. He's watching. He knows. And then as soon as you engage with him, he says, he's the God of peace who sanctifies you. And and this is why it's a process that he wants them to stay engaged in. We see this same connection in Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, right? We see so much of what Paul is saying here in one chunk at the end of Philippians chapter 4. 
verses 4 through 7 and in verse 9. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now you can see everything that I've said about this epistle is summarized right here perfectly. What I have done, do. Rejoice. Why should you rejoice? Because the gospel has come to you. Jesus is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Give thanks. In prayer and supplication. He's mentioning all of the things that he mentions in 1 Thessalonians. Now, saints of God, right? I, w- when we are engaged in this process of you sitting there listening to me, thankfully for a, a lot less time today than usual, what, what is happening is that there has been a report in heaven. And, and God has sent a messenger to deliver a message to you. And, and that message is always twofold. I am pleased with what I am hearing, but I have an encouraging word for you. When you come here and you listen to the Lord God declaring his truth through his, the sermon, that is what is happening. It's like, he, it's like Paul writing a letter to the Thessalonians. Listen, I miss you. Listen, I yearn for you. Listen, I am grateful for you. Listen, the gospel has come amongst you. The spirit is amongst you. It is at work in you, it says. He says the gospel is at work in you. He's not, he's not guessing. He's not like, well, maybe some of you. He's talking to his people, and he's saying emphatically, I am with you, and you are with me. And you're doing very well. I want to remind you of the relationship that we have. And the fact that the gospel that has saved you has brought you into my presence, I'm always with you. Therefore, because of the Holy Spirit and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness that is in you because of my gifts to you, rejoice, give thanks, and pray. Don't, let, right, don't quench the Spirit. Don't ignore this relationship. Don't put it on the back burner. Don't, right, don't quench the Spirit. The Spirit is the thing that keeps us connected. And if you're engaging with me, I'm engaging with you. I'm the, I'm the God of peace, giving you peace, giving you sanctification, making you more like myself. When you come here and you sit there and you listen, this is, this is going to be difficult for some of us. I want you to listen to the thing that you need to change, and I want you to listen to the thing that you need to go home and give thanks for. Because in every single one of these sermons, it's like Paul addressing the Thessalonians, there is something of each. We are the people of God. That's why we're here. We are the people of God. We have received the gospel. We have received the Holy Spirit. That's why we're listening to a sermon. There's no other reason to do it. The assumption from heaven is that you have everything you need to obey. He's telling you to do something here. Rejoice, give thanks, pray. And everything that he's telling you to do, he's already provided everything you need to do it. And that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. And so if we are supposed to be a people who, who give thanks always and in every circumstance, how much more when, when this sad, pathetic world, right, this sad culture that we live in wants to have a day 
that they call Thanksgiving? Who should be outdoing everybody? Right? When, when we're having this conversation, <laughs> I'm going to go there, about Israel, one of the things that we have to understand is that Gentiles have come into the kingdom to make them jealous. Jealousy is part of it. We're going to talk about this. Look at that harmonious picture there. Look at those happy people. Look at all this rejoicing. Look at all this giving thanks. Look at all of this nearness to God. And, and that is something that attracts people to the kingdom of heaven. And so, you know, I understand this is what we want to do. They're going to have a Thanksgiving where we're not going to participate in that in any way, shape, or form because they're a bunch of God-haters. No, I like, I'm like, oh, you guys, are, you're going to declare a day where we give thanks? Well, it's something we as the church do all the time. And so watch us work. Watch us. Watch how much laughter there is. Watch how much gratitude there is. Watch how much feasting there is. Watch how the people of God give thanks. And what I find is that when it comes to this holiday, we really have a hard time engaging in it because we really have a hard time engaging in giving thanks on a normal basis. We're we're not engaged in this relationship like we ought to be. But you have received the word from heaven. It's at work in you. So don't quench the spirit. Engage the spirit. Through him, draw close and near to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will not only feel peace and sanctification, but you will feel joy and gratitude and and nearness to the one who wants to draw near to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you so much for Paul's letter to Thessalonica. I pray, God, that as we have received this word, that we would um, not quench the Spirit, Lord God, but that we would in prayer and thanksgiving and in rejoicing, draw near to you, Lord. And thank you for all the wondrous works that you have done on our behalf, all the good that you have done. Lord, we are your people. Your word is here. You are here. Your spirit is here. And you are at work within us. So therefore, Lord, let us rejoice greatly. Let us give an abundance of thanks. And let us, Lord, draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And amen.